Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Top Chef Abishar Barua was born in Columbus, Ohio, went to Ohio State to study to become a doctor, but instead became a chef. And I'm glad that he did, because a few weeks ago, I went to his cafe in Worthington, named Joya's after his mom. You've been to Joya's? You should go to Joya's. It's incredible. I ordered a simple breakfast sandwich, but it was anything but simple. It was anything but simple. Uh, so Samin Nasrach, she says that there's like four ingredients to master when you're cooking. Salt, fat, acid, heat. She forgot a fifth. Spice. <laughs> spice. Um, that sandwich had spice. And so if you ask me, Joe, what did that sandwich taste like? I would be disgracing the other spices if I narrowed in on one. I'd be disgracing the complexity of this amazing meal. Better to just say to you, go, go and taste it. Taste it and see for yourself. Well, if you can believe it, I actually thought of that sandwich as I studied Hebrews 9 this week. (laughs) Uh, Last week, Aaron walked us through the first 11 verses of chapter 9. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We have these scripture journals in the front that you are welcome to have and to keep as well and take notes on. Hebrews 9. I'll be walking through verses 11 through 28. And this morning we're going to experience verses 11 through 28. And I say experience on purpose because, like my sandwich, okay, this passage is meant to be experienced. If you didn't know, this is a sermon. Hebrews is a sermon. It's meant to be read aloud to the, to the faithful. And to be experienced as such. And I just want to say, as I've been studying this thing, it has like so many spices. So many amazing ingredients. I could spend one verse on, I could spend one sermon on each verse. And if you know me, if you've been around Hope Long, you know I'm capable of such a thing, okay? <laughs> well, that would take us to June, if you were wondering. And I'm not going to do that. Um, our goal this morning instead is not mastery, it's worship. Let's set our hearts to that goal right now. What if we set our hearts to that, to that this, this very morning, that by the time this message is over, we would be worshiping Jesus? And as I read this passage aloud, allow all of these images to mix together into something that is not just nutritious, because it is, but that is beautiful, worshipful. So again, Hebrews 9, I'll start in verse 11. I invite you to follow along as I read. This is God's Word. But when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent. Not made with hands that is. Not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy place. The most holy place. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves. 
but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised and eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes only effect at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. Talking about the tabernacle here. Which are copies of the true things. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence or before the face of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. At the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for one man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Lord, May the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer and Holy Spirit. Would you do something here? Use the word you inspired that we just read aloud to show us Jesus, to make Jesus more beautiful to our hearts. And then, yes, to conform us into his image. Do something, we ask, by your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so as I started things off talking about food, I'm going to continue that theme. One of my favorite spots in Columbus is Pho on Lane. Uh, it's one of those old Taco Bell buildings. You know what I'm talking about? The, the original Taco Bell buildings? The, the Taco Bell building that I grew up with? <laughs> Again, anyone else? Um, and so just like Taco Bell, Pho offers drive-thru. And it's super convenient. The only downside is they make their... It's not a downside, but the only downside is that they make their food to order. Okay, so if there is a line, you better have a good podcast because you're going to be waiting for a while. One day, 
I was in line uh, sitting behind a black SUV, if my memory serves. And then kind of out of nowhere, I watched this black SUV just sort of peel out of the line and drive away. Which stinks. You know, it stinks, number one, because the folks at Fah ordered, like, prepared their food for them, and now they're not getting paid. But number two, it was now my job to notify the window that I am not the black SUV and that they drove off. <laughs> and as a people pleaser, I didn't like that at all. That's terrible. They weren't surprised. It must happen. Because here's the thing, we hate to wait. We hate to wait. And we can't get too judgy about that black SUV, can we? Because we're all sort of that black SUV in life and in different ways. And maybe literally you have peeled out of a line because you got tired of waiting. I mean, let's just point to this left turn signal for a minute. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? That thing is trouble. That is rough. I mean, if that wasn't a left turn to church, how many of us would be just turning on the red? Anybody? We hate the wait. This is important to point out because Hebrews defines the Jesus follower in verse 28 as those who are eagerly waiting for him. A Christian is a lot of things, but if you boil it down, Jesus followers are those who are eagerly waiting for him. And yet we hate to wait. We're this close from pulling out of the line, aren't we? And friends, that's why Hebrews exists in the Bible. The preacher of Hebrews has one goal. To keep you waiting. To prevent the pull-out. To other things. Waiting is war. And the preacher knows this. Which is why the preacher is equipping us to wait. That's what this sermon is about. Waiting is not easy. Waiting feels wrong. I'm sure the black SUV felt justified. It was taking too long. It felt almost unjust. And so, yeah, they're taking a hit financially, but they deserve it, I'm sure, is the thought process behind waiting. Waiting is hard. That's why buildings put mirrors in elevators. Because waiting is hard. That's why gas stations put flat screens on the gas pumps. <laughs> because waiting is hard. To distract you. To distract you from the discomfort of waiting. But here's the thing that's unique about Hebrews. Hebrews does not distract you into waiting. Hebrews throws logs on the fire of longing. That word eagerly is so important to the program of Hebrews. Hebrews doesn't say... Yeah, I know waiting for Jesus is hard. Think of something else. Think of, here, let me distract you with this over here. No, instead, instead, what the preacher of Hebrews says, it says, hey, you're waiting on Jesus. It's worth it. And let me tell you why. In fact, worship as you wait. Because the only way we will stay in line, friends, when we're tempted to pull out, is that we are convinced that who we are waiting for is worth it. And that's chapter 9 for us. 
I said earlier, this passage is possible to summarize, and that's true. And you probably were thinking that even as I was reading, like how on earth are we going to pull this together? But there is a thread that ties a lot of this passage together, and it's this. It's the appearances of Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that word appear as I was reading, but it's there. It's there in three critical places. In fact, verse 11 starts us off, the very first verse. We see the appearance of Jesus specifically as a high priest on the Day of Atonement. And this is, friends, why I'm so happy we're coming off of our Table Read series. Because we spent so much time talking about the Old Testament. And that will pay off for us this morning. But we do need to still familiarize ourselves with this most important day in the calendar of the Israelites. The Day of Atonement. And the high priest and their role on this Day of Atonement. So let's just do that for a minute. Let's just take two to refresh ourselves with this day. God's people, they're meant to be, I would argue, at one. At one with God. But because of sin, we are not at one with God. We are not experiencing the relationship that we were designed for. Instead, you could say that we are at odds with God. Now, how do we fix that problem? We try so hard to fix that problem. I mean, we could argue that most of life is trying to fix the problem of disconnection that our sin brings before God. And the thing is, we can't. We can't do that. The divide is too big. But here's what's true. God provides a way for us to be at one with Him again. He offers at one minute. Now, I'm not being clever right now, like taking this word and saying, oh, look, it's a word play on at one minute. No, that's actually why the word exists. 16th century English speakers tried to capture the, the meaning of the Hebrew word kippur. And the best that they could do is this word at one minute. If you read Shakespeare, you're going to see the word one-ment all over the place. Where two feuding parties are experiencing one-ment after their war. And so to be at one-ment is to have that war cease and to be in relationship again. To sit at a table, as has been said. And so English speakers in the 16th century were like, that is exactly what's going on with these sacrifices. In the book of Leviticus. God provides a way to be at one with him when they are at odds. And he offers at one or atonement. Kippur, atonement. Kippur, that's how we move from at odds to at one with God. So sin pollutes, atonement cleanses. Sin enslaves and threatens judgment from God. Atonement rescues. Sin makes us at odds, but God provides at one Atonement. But atonement, friends, is not cheap. It's costly because it's bloody. It's literally a sacrifice. So then in verse 22, we see this. 
Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There was all throughout the year atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament, but once a year there was this day of atonement. And this day was very important, because on this day, all sin that piled up all year, unintentional sins, even high-handed sins were dealt with. So in the flow chart of sacrifices, the day of atonement was at the very top. And this is the world that Hebrews invites us into, the day of atonement. The day of atonement, it was a bloody day. I don't know if you noticed how much blood was in this text. It was a lot. Friends, don't miss this. It was a glorious day for every faithful Israelite. It was a day of release. It was a day of forgiveness. It was a day of relief. And Hebrews wants us to see that in all of its greatness, in all of its greatness, this day was a shadow cast by Jesus himself. It was a shadow cast by Jesus himself. So, a long time ago, when I was sometimes putting the kids to bed, if there was light coming in from the hallway, I would do shadow puppets on the wall. Okay? I would do shadow puppets on the wall. The Day of Atonement, I want you to understand, is described as a shadow to the real object. So the Day of Atonement was in itself, uh, the Day of Atonement was in itself basically taking shape from the real thing, which is what? Better question, which is who? Jesus. This Day of Atonement was preparing them for what? The arrival, the appearing, the appearing, verse 11 says, of Jesus the high priest and what he would come and do. So Hebrew scholar Philip Hughes helped me see something significant about this day of atonement. And he points out that if you were a faithful Israelite, the high priest would appear on that day in three critical moments. I'll put them on the screen for you. These were, in a way, three appearances of the high priest. Think of it that way. The high priest would appear in a courtyard and offer atonement. The high priest would then appear in the Holy of Holies. And then the high priest would appear to all of the people waiting for them to emerge, for him to emerge. And so Hughes asks the question, could it be that Hebrews 9 wants us to see that Jesus enacts and fulfills all three of these appearings? I think it's true. Because first, Jesus, the true high priest, appears in the courtyard for his crucifixion. The final and full atoning sacrifice. And then Jesus goes and appears before the face of God in heaven with his ascension. And then, yes, friends, where are we in this story? We are waiting for his return. For when the great high priest reemerges from the holiest place. I want to take a look at each of these briefly with the time we have left. Starting with his first appearance. The crucifixion. So verse 11, if you have your Bibles open, says Jesus appeared as a high priest, but unlike the shadow, this time the sacrifice is the sacrificer. The offerer is the offering. The, the sort of priest of atonement in Jesus is the price of atonement. And so look at verse 26, where it says, But as it is, he appeared once and for all. He appeared once and for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So again, every year the high priest would appear at the courtyard altar to make an atoning sacrifice. This is a simplification of Leviticus. 
But herein steps Jesus, who appears to a different kind of partner. His own crucifixion, the Roman execution row, his cross, to make full and final atonement, to put away sin by the sacrifice, not of an animal, but of himself. Which alone makes us at one with God, atonement. And how does it do that? Well, this passage shows us all kinds of ways, answers us in all kinds of ways. Let's run through them. First of all, the cross secures our redemption, our rescue. If you look at verses 11 through 12, It says that the cross of Jesus secures an eternal redemption. So that word redemption means, many people put it this way, rescue by ransom. Rescue by ransom. So in those days, if you wanted to rescue somebody who was trapped, you had to pay a ransom. Sacrifice paid the price, we're reading here, to get us out of the tyranny and the condemnation that sin brings and into safety, and into freedom. Verse 15 of chapter 9 says that the sacrificial death was Jesus. It says, a death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the cross makes us at one with God because it rescues us. The cross also makes us at one with God because it cleanses us. Look again at verses 13 through 14. There at the end of verse 14 we see this. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Why? To purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Leviticus expert Jay Swar compares sin in the Old Testament to dust. To dust. Sin, in a way, settles like dust on us, and it settles like dust on our communities. And try as we might to keep the dust off, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. Try as we might to keep the dust off my car dash, for goodness sake. It just keeps coming. Well, in the Old Testament, blood, and this is just the way it was, was like pledge is to dust. And that's how the Old Testament sort of understood blood, as a cleansing agent. It took the dust off, the dust of sin, But because that blood was sort of from unwilling animals, it could only hit the surface. That's the argument of Hebrews. And because it was repetitive and it happened every single day, and then on the Day of Atonement it happened once a year, but then it happened again the next year, and then again the next year, and then again the next year, and then again the next year, it was understood and even experienced that this was a temporary cleansing. And at best, it pointed folks to the future when the blood of another would forever wipe us clean. And that's Jesus. The cross makes us at one because it cleanses us. The cross also makes us at one with God because it secures. It secures our inheritance. And that's the heartbeat of verses 15 through 21. We'll just highlight one verse, verse 17, where it says, A will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So let's say that you stand to inherit your uncle's landlord, or lawnmower. It's in his will for you. Fantastic, right? Well, for you to get his lawnmower, um, the facts are, he has to die first. 
Well, here's the thing. This is the argument going on in this part of this chapter. If Jesus owns the whole world, as he made it, and he does. And if he has promised to give it to his followers, the meek shall inherit the work. It's not ours until he dies. And we stand to inherit all the promises of the new covenant. If you look up in the chapter before this, we see the promises of the new covenant. Things like intimacy, forever intimacy, forever forgiveness, inside-out renovation. For these promises to come alive, it is by dying as the perfect sacrifice that Jesus gives it all to us. The cross makes us that one with God because it secures our inheritance. And then finally, friends, because it forgives. Look again at verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Um, as Brene Brown put it so eloquently about 10 years ago or so, quoting, in order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. And she goes on, in all these faith communities where forgiveness is easy and love is easy, there's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. I think what she means here is that the act of forgiving another is a bloody affair. And not the blood of the other, but the blood of the forgiver. Because the forgiver must take the hit. Now consider that the forgiver in question here is not another person, but the thrice holy God who created it all and stands sovereign over all. And we can pretend that God is not as holy and just as he is in the scriptures, but that does not make it true. Because he is. And if it's costly for another human to forgive another human, if there's blood on the floor from that transaction, how much more for a holy God to truly forgive our acts of what have been called cosmic treason? How much more for him to remain just and holy and yet to remain as loving and merciful as he is described in the Bible? Nancy Guthrie asks us to quote, I'm quoting her, imagine the expense of taking the best animal in your herd down to the temple in Jerusalem just to be burned up. That was the animal that would have produced the best offspring, and that was your whole life. And it wasn't easy to give up. Now imagine the time burden, especially if you didn't live in Jerusalem. You'd have to travel and find a place to stay. Imagine the emotional and spiritual burden, she asks as you made this trek, knowing that you would have to identify and confess your sin to the priest in the offering of your sacrifice. But also imagine the burden rolling away. When the priest declared your sin forgiven, imagine the sense of relief you felt. You would think, she writes, it should be me. I'm the one who deserves to die. That's what scripture says. The penalty of sin is death. But this innocent animal, she writes, has become my substitute. The animal has died so that I can live. So that would be in the everyday experience of the faithful Israelite. And this is why the Day of Atonement was a bloody day. Guthrie actually helped me imagine the kind of impact that would have on me. Because I'm just an imaginary person here, and I'm thinking, blood, blood was everywhere on this day. This was not a clean, tidy day. But what that would do is it would billboard, it would remind me that sin is everywhere. But more importantly... That God's commitment to forgive sin is everywhere. 
Grace is everywhere. But remember, uh, this is a shadow cast by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrificial system involves an animal who had, had no vote, right? Who had no vote in this process. Had no idea what they were doing. Who didn't get a vote. They were spotless, yes, but spotless not morally. Not spotless in their covenant faithfulness to the Lord, no. But in walks Jesus. Okay, in walks Jesus who is spotless in his will. Who offers himself on purpose. On purpose. It's why he came. Out of love. Out of love for you. Who is not coerced to do this. And who is truly spotless because he is God in flesh without sin. And unlike the high priests of old, okay, who entered the holy places with blood not their own. What does Hebrews say? Jesus has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away or to nullify sin by the sacrifice of himself. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Friends, rescue it's Jesus. Cleansing, it's Jesus. Nullification of sins, past, present, and future. It's Jesus. It's the once and for all atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Rescue, cleansing, forgiveness. Which of those words, I ask, draw you in? Which of those words are you longing for? What are you most needing right now? Well, Hebrews is inviting you to Trust in Jesus who showed up, who appeared the courtyard of his crucifixion to give those things to you. He appeared to offer the sacrifice. We're going to briefly talk on the other two appearings because there's another one on display here in this text and that's his second appearance we could call it where he not only appears as the sacrifice, the day of atonement sacrifice, the final full one, but he also appears after that in the Holy of Holies. So on the Day of Atonement, and only on the Day of Atonement, this one day a year, the high priest, after offering that atoning sacrifice, would then take the blood of that sacrifice into the most holy place. So oftentimes the priests hung out in the holy place, not the holiest of holies, okay? They hung out in the holy place, and it was kind of this room with a veil. And you didn't go into the veil, because that's where the Ark of the Presence was. That's where God himself, his footstool was. But once a year you did go in. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And so the high priest would actually enter into the, into the holiest of holies. But he would do so with that blood. Well, this is how we should understand the ascension of Jesus. From our perspective, Jesus disappears. Right? We're reading Acts 1 and we're like, what the heck? Why are you leaving? What's going on? And honestly, in our churches, we don't talk a lot about the ascension, do we? We just sort of are like, I'm glad he rose again from the dead. Resurrection, yay. Ascension was a big deal to the original audience of the scriptures. A very big deal. Not only was he enthroned in his ascension, but as we see from Hebrews, it was the high priest entering into the very holy of holies, the presence, the face of God, the Father, at God's right hand. Disappearing to God, we see in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to what? Appear. 
in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, what does it mean that Jesus has appeared in the presence of God on our behalf? What does that mean, on our behalf? Because it's one thing for Jesus and for us to proclaim Jesus ascended to God's right hand. It's another thing to say that Jesus ascended to God's right hand for us. What does that have to do with me? What does his ascension have to do with you? Well, Hebrews is eager to answer this question over and over again. And we've seen this already, but it's worth repeating. The first way that he is doing this for us on our behalf is by way of invitation. Jesus is in the Holy of Holies right now, inviting us to do the same. That is audacious. It's absolutely audacious, and we have to spend time in the Hebrew Scriptures for us to really feel how audacious this is. We don't feel it, do we? Draw near to the presence of God with boldness. And we're like, yeah, cool, that's great. Do that every day in my quiet time. Amen. Okay? The original audience, they're like, do what? No. Once a year, high priest, blood of atonement. That's it. Serious business. This is a holy God we're talking about. And I'm a sinner. No way. I'll watch the high priest do it. And even then, the high priest has to sacrifice for himself. But time and time again, Hebrews invites us to draw near into the holiest place. So if you look in your Bibles, verse 16 of chapter 4, let us in with confidence, not fear, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. So the throne, the footstool of God is no longer something to be afraid of, but is now a throne of grace. It's characterized by God's grace, His invitation. Why? So that we would receive mercy and find grace for our time in need. Chapter 10, verse 19, brothers and sisters, since we have this confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we go in with confidence, not in our own strength, but precisely because of the crucifixion of Jesus. It's his atoning blood that gives us access to the most holy place where Jesus is now. Do you see it? The ascension matters to you, okay? Because it is an invitation to to experience the oneness with God that you were designed to have. The intimacy with the Creator that you were designed to have. We can boldly walk into the Holy of Holies. And it's the sacrifice of Jesus that made it possible. But that's not the only reason that He did this for us. He also did this for us to intercede continually for us. In my commentaries, I came across this old quote from John Owen. I'll read it to you. John Owen writes... It is generally acknowledged that sinners could not be saved without the death of Christ. Amen? Yes. Okay, we agree with that. But the believers could not be saved without the life of Christ following it is not so much considered. Did you catch it? There is the death of Christ which saves. But do we consider that the life of Christ that follows his death also saves us. How? Well, he's up in heaven right now in the presence of God, not only inviting us, but also interceding for us. He's praying for you. He's praying for you right now. And so Luke twenty two thirty one says, I've prayed to you, Peter. I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And guess what happens? Peter's faith does not fail. Okay? So if the interceder is in the right is the right hand of God and he's interceding on our behalf, that is what saves us too. Not just his death, but his intercession on our behalf. I had a friend who wrote reminders on his hand. Okay, so do you have a friend like this, or maybe you are that person? Do you write reminders on your hand, anybody? Yeah? No? Okay. That was before cell phones, I guess. Um, 
His hand was an inky mess. It was just like an inky, inky mess. But he never forgot what he wrote down. And this is Jesus right now. He says your name because your name is on him. He says your name. He so identifies with you. So that when he's, when he's calling Paul to himself, he's like, why are you persecuting me? Talking about the church. He so identifies with you, okay? That he has your name on him. And he's basically saying your name to the Lord on a continual basis. Right now, even as we preach, praying for you like he prayed for Peter. That your faith would not fail. I don't know if there's anything else I can tell you that could per- help you persevere in this walk when you're tempted to drive away than that truth right now. He's praying for you. And, you know, he's the second person of the Trinity. I'm thinking it's a safe bet that when he prays, his prayers are answered. We can eagerly wait for Jesus to show up because he already has in two very crucial ways. He appeared as a high priest at the cross and he appears at his ascension and that's taking us right to where we started. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and here's that final appearing, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin because that's been dealt with, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.